All right, well, thank you for having me here today. It's a pleasure to be with you all. Uh, I am fighting a bit of a cold right now, so forgive my runny nose and uh, trouble with that, but we'll get through it. Well, this morning we are continuing our walk through the divine drama, the narrative of Scripture. And the part that we've come to this morning is kind of a low point, uh, maybe a bit of a downer. It's, it's the exile. When Israel was taken out of their land into Babylon and lost everything. And what I want to do in this, if I understand my assignment correctly, is I want to help us probe and understand God's character and his intentions in this exile event. Uh, I think there's been some pretty large charges brought against God and his actions in the Old Testament. Uh, We'll hear a quote later. But what is God's character and his intentions in this? And the other thing I want to consider and explore is what is our story today? How does, that, how does this story of the exile inform us? Uh, as a student here at Prairie years ago, our professor, Dr. Oz Lorenzen, taught us to read Israel's story as our story. It takes meditation and discernment and counsel to understand how it maps on. It's not always one-to-one, but Israel's story and how God worked with Israel helps us understand how God works with us. So to understand what's happening in the exile account, I want to start by looking back a little bit first. And so I want to look at what God's been doing with Israel and why he's been doing it and see if that gives us any insight into what's happening in the exile. So in the Outdoor Leadership Program, we talk a lot about facilitation and the role of the facilitator in the adventure experience process. The facilitator is the person who's responsible to guide a group of people through adventures, something that takes us out of our comfort zone, puts us in a state of disequilibrium, and they're responsible to help have a purpose to that event, guide us through it, help us learn from it so that we're formed and transformed through our experiences. And that's what I see God doing here with the people of Israel in the Old Testament. Uh, He has some very clear stated purposes. He told them at Mount Sinai, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. And that's building off the Abrahamic covenant that he made with Abraham where he said, I will make you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. God's working with Israel to bring the Edenic blessing back into this world, and then through Israel to bring it back to all the other nations. But as James Enns quoted last week, uh, bringing them up out of Egypt was the easy part. Getting Egypt and the idolatry and the sin and the, the unrighteousness out of Israel, that's, that's the hard work. And so God brings them through experiences, very intentionally crafted experiences, to help form his people. Uh, I was thinking about this story not that long ago. We got to go to Egypt back in the spring uh, with a group of OL students. And I was thinking about why did they end up stuck at the Red Sea? Like Moses had been to Mount Sinai and back. He knew the way. And then I I went and read the story again and, and it said God led them to the Red Sea. So why did God lead them to a point where there was death on one side and then there was the army coming down? God surely knew that army was coming. There's death on both sides and God led them there specifically. That was a very intentional action. It was a very intentionally crafted adventure, so to speak. Uh, And God provided a way through, and he was instructing, and he was forming, and he was teaching. And we see that again and again and again throughout the Torah. Uh, He provides water on the desert on the third day. Again, almost at the point of death, uh, he provides water. He sends manna. He also sends snakes when there's grumbling. Uh, But he's not just using these experiences. He also teaches and provides law, and he meets with them at Mount Sinai. When warring nations attack, he provides deliverance. Later on in the story, when they are under oppression, he raises up judges. He sends multiple prophets through to teach, to bring his word, to rebuke, to turn them back. 
Uh, God is intentionally trying to build up and form Israel into a nation that can be the vehicle of blessing for themselves, that they can be blessed, but also that they can be an extension of that blessing to all the other nations. God wants all to be blessed. He wants all to flourish, but the plan is not working. And so we get to this point where they are exiled. And we have to ask the question, is this still part of God's plan? Is this another intentional action that God's taking to fulfill his purposes? Or is he giving up? Is he throwing in the towel and saying, I can't work with this people. I can't accomplish my plan through them, so I quit. Is this a giving up or is this another intentional action? Now, if you're not as familiar with the exile account, uh, let's just refresh where it's at and... and, uh, do a recap on what this would feel like if you were in the shoes of an Israelite. So King Nebuchadnezzar brought his army down and they laid siege to Jerusalem for 30 months. Now I think we have a little bit of uh, empathetic connection. Uh, COVID and its restrictions and, and impingements on us lasted about that amount of time. But imagine for those 30 months we were stuck inside campus, or you know, this area of campus, not much bigger, walls around us, and a Babylonian army camped outside the entire period of COVID. We don't go out, nothing comes in. Obviously, food doesn't come in, so starvation's gonna increase, no medicines, no health, sickness is gonna increase, right? We're gonna probably be a little pent up. Uh, It's gonna be a really unpleasant experience to be under siege. And when we get to the end of that siege, finally things are so bad that the king makes a run for it. Even though uh, the prophet Jeremiah told him, if you hand yourself over, you'll be treated well. Instead, he goes, no, I'm making a run for it. Nebuchadnezzar's army tracks him down. They capture him. They kill his sons in front of him. Then they pluck out his eyes and they haul him off into captivity. Then the army comes back, plunders the city, tears down all the buildings, takes all the treasure, loots and plunders. And so everything's in ruin. And then their last step is to round up the population, put them in chains, haul them off to Babylon. So just consider if that's you in this moment, right? Your life as you know it is over. Your routines, your job, your home, your friends, everything that gave life a semblance of normalcy and predictability and and security is gone. You're in a foreign land, there's a foreign language, foreign everything. Nothing is going to make sense to you. And it's one thing if that just happens to you on an individual level, if you're taken into captivity and your people remain and your land remains and there's a place you can hope to get back to, but that's not the case here. The king is dead, the the priesthood has been destroyed, the temple has been torn down, everything about your civilization and society and nation has been wiped out and destroyed. There's, There's nothing to go back to even if they released you. And if you're an Israelite, also you've lost the land. The land was your inheritance, it was the promise, it was the gift of God to you, and it's, it's gone now. And then that has to lead you to ask the question, have you lost your God as well? That has, been their, that has been their security. They have had the God above all gods claim them, and now, is that over? Has he turned his back on them completely? That's what the author of Lamentations asks, asks at the end of the book. Is this all over? So, If I was there in their shoes, I would be asking the question, why has this happened? And on one hand, if you've been listening to the prophets, it's very clear. This has happened because of Israel's sin and their idolatry. Um, They've been saying that this is coming because of these things. And that's, on one hand, it's kind of like saying uh, if you fall into alcoholism and you lose your job and you lose your family and you lose your health, well, yeah, it's because you drank too much and those are kind of natural consequences of your actions. 
But I'd still be asking another question, and is that, does God have a purpose in this? Is God just abandoning me to the consequences of my decisions? Is he just saying, fine, I'm indifferent, I'm done, you deal, you figure it out. Or is this, again, is this an intentional act? Is this motivated by God's love, his indifference? What, what's going on here? Does God have a purpose in it? Because if God has a purpose in it, perhaps there's hope. And if God doesn't have a purpose in it, if God's in, done with us, what a desperate place to be. And the text is quite clear that this is not a matter of God's indifference. Uh, we'll start with uh, a verse here that gives some insight. Oh, Babylonian exile, here we go. Both in Jeremiah and 2 Kings, it's quite clear that God is not indifferent to the plight of the Israelites. In fact, it says he's angry. Jeremiah 52.3 says, It was because of the Lord's anger that all this has happened to Jerusalem and Judah. Now, I don't know if that's a comfort. Do we want God indifferent with us, just turning his back on us and saying, I'm done? Or do we want him angry with us? And this is a, this is a question and a, and a part of God's interaction with the story that I think uh, can be challenging and can be scary, but we can also be really misunderstood. And a quote from Richard Dawkins, the um, part of the new atheist movement, kind of the militant proselytizing atheist movement, uh, he, he looks at these kinds of stories in the Old Testament, and this is his summary, this is what he comes away with from reading these stories. He says, the God of the Old Testament is arguably the most unpleasant character in all fiction, jealous and proud of it, a petty, unjust, unforgiving control freak, vindictive, bloodthirsty, ethnic cleanser, misogynistic, homophobic, racist. He goes on for quite a while and gets to a malevolent bully. Um, it's quite a list of charges he brings against God. And so is that right? Is that, the, is that like, we like Jesus and we like the New Testament and the gospel and the hope, but yeah, the Old Testament's kind of uncomfortable and we'd rather just not look at it. These stories of the exile where, where he's angry and then he sends his people into exile, which is destruction and death. What's, what's the right profile here? The Apostle John, who had the same Torah, the same stories, the same scriptures, and who walked with Jesus doesn't come away with this conclusion. He comes away with God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. A pretty different profile. So I think the one thing we can safely say is God's not indifferent, but then what's going on here? If God is love, love means that we always Love means that you always desire the flourishing, the goodness of the one you love. Right? Not just emotional feeling. It's an active desire, which is going to often be accompanied by sacrifice, action, and so on, to see the flourishing and the goodness of the one you love. So how does that square up with the exile? How does God's love for Israel square up with them being, losing the land, losing their nationhood, being in servitude in Babylon? I want to look at one part of God's anger first, because I know this can be a challenging and uncomfortable subject, and I think part of it's um, misguided. Part of it is that we're projecting our own human emotional experiences onto God. When it says God's angry, I think, well, that must be like how I get angry. And when I get angry, well, what happens? Well, I, I tend to lose some degree of control of myself. I do things that are not in line with my, what I would consider my normal character and intentions. I get reactive. I might say things that are hurtful or be violent, that would cause pain. Um, on the worst end, 
we completely lose control of ourselves. We, we fly off the hook, right? We're out of control. Our intentions, our plan, our character is completely overridden by this feeling of anger, and we do things we deeply regret and that hurt people. And is that what's happening with God here? He's getting so angry that he's losing control of himself, and therefore he just has to throw Israel out? This isn't in line with his character and his intentions and his promises to Abraham and what he said on Mount Sinai. This, this is a complete deviation from that. This is, he got angry and he lost control. He's vindictive and a control freak and everything else Dawkins says. Well, we can see in the biblical narrative that this isn't necessarily the case. The first example of God being, where God is described as being angry is when he is talking to Moses on Mount Sinai at the burning bush. So even though through all through Genesis there's a lot of things we could consider we would think would be fair that God would be angry about, he's never described that way. He's very grieved at the flood, but never is he described as angry. And then we get to the story with Moses, and God's working with Moses, and four, four times Moses kind of has these deflections and questions, and God keeps responding to him, and then on the fifth time, he just says, please send somebody else. Like, he stops hiding, and he just says, I just don't want to do it, Okay. <laughs> And then it says, then the Lord's anger burned against Moses, and he crushed him. No. He said, what about your brother, Aaron the Levite? I know he can speak well. He is already on his way to meet you, and he will be glad to see you. God's angry with Moses. He's looking for a human partner to work with, and that human partner is not willing to be in faith, respond to him. But what does he do in his anger? Does he berate him, shame him, kill him? No, he provides a gracious concession. So God can obviously have the experience of being angry, but not be controlled by it. God can be angry and still act out of his character and his intentions and his plan. He's not derailed by the emotional experiences that he has in relating to his world. So unlike us where we're controlled by it, that's not necessarily the case with God. Um, to see God in that way is to bring him down to the human level. But even, even you and I, as we mature, we've had emotional experiences where we felt angry or sad or happy or whatever it is, and we've been able to say, okay, that's what I'm feeling. What's it telling me? Now how do I need to respond appropriately? And if you and I can do that, certainly God can. So what is anger? Where does anger come from? Why is God experiencing anger? Uh, Dallas Willard, the theologian and philosopher, Explore students knew I'd get them in here. Um, he says that anger, the source and cause of anger, is always the subversion of our will. Okay? So I want something. It could be as simple as I want a donut, and I'm going to go get that donut, and then Anthony comes up and he swipes that donut from me. Now I am deprived of the pleasure of a donut, which was my will. And I'm also deprived, uh, now Anthony, he knew I wanted that donut, and he took it, so now I'm also... You know, right? So there's these layers of which I wanted something in this world. I wanted people to look out for me. I wanted, I wanted to eat my donut, and those things are taken away, and now I'm feeling angry. But it's sometimes it's okay if I feel angry. That's not, that's not necessarily a bad thing. And the reason that's not a bad thing is because my will is not perfect. My will is often short-sighted, selfish, lacking in wisdom, could even be evil. So the fact that my will isn't being accomplished in this world might not be such a bad thing. In fact, a lot of the maturity process and discipleship process is releasing our will to God and saying, there's lots of things I want, but maybe you have something better in your will and your wisdom, and it's okay. And then we can not get our way and not even be angry. We can accept it. But that's different with God, right? His will is perfect. When God's will doesn't happen, it's a really bad thing. 
for all of us. And so when God, with the statement God is angry, on one level, I think just tells us that God's perfect and loving and pleasing will is being thwarted by his human partners. Again, that doesn't mean he's being controlled by it. It doesn't mean he's flying into a rage and now an out-of-control, vengeful God. It means his will, his good will for us is not happening. And that is, I think there's other words, grieving, makes him sad, sorrowful. But angry would be another word that would fit. And that's the word the biblical authors, through the inspiration of his spirit, choose to use here. So why is God angry? What part of his will is being subverted in this example? And the text here is really clear, and all the way through the prophets, in the book of Lamentations, uh, is really clear what happened. Israel has given themselves to idolatry, and that idolatry has led to wickedness and to sin. It's pretty easy to judge the Israelites. You know, you had all these great examples from God. God's been with you. He's given you his word. Why do you keep going back to these idols, Right? Uh, and, and the reason they do is the exact same reason we give ourselves to idols and false gods. Fear and greed. There's things we think we need for a good life. Things we're afraid we're not going to get that would make our life good. And so we reach out and we take them. We say, I can't wait for God. That's too vulnerable. It's too scary. Maybe God doesn't love me. Maybe he doesn't want to give them to me, whatever the thing is. And so then we find ways to secure what we think will make a good life on our own terms. But usually we need to enlist some help to do that. And that's where idols come in. Andy Crouch, uh, author and editor of Christianity Today, has really done some good thinking about idolatry in our current society. And this is how he summarizes idols. All idols begin by offering great things for a very small price. All idols then fail more and more consistently to deliver on their original promises while ratcheting up their demands, which initially seems so reasonable for both worship and sacrifice. In the end, they fail completely, even as they make categorical demands. In the memorable phase, phrase of psychiatrist Jeffrey Satinover, idols ask for more and more while giving less and less until eventually they demand everything and give nothing in return. And this is the nature of idols and the nature of the things we chase. We start going towards them because they actually deliver something for us, whether that be money, whether that be our relationship to work, people-pleasing, pornography, drugs, alcohol, whatever the thing is, it actually, it's delivering something. It's giving us something that we think we need to get through the day or to make our life worthwhile or to make our life manageable or good or whatever the thing is. But over time, the trade-off starts to change and they start to demand more and more while delivering less on that original promise until they make the ultimate demand of us. They give us nothing and they say, you have to give us the most precious thing. And in society, the most precious thing is the life of our children. And that's where idolatry always leads. This is, again, the observation by Andy Crouch. Idolatry will always lead to child sacrifice. Us giving up our children in order to secure what we think we need for a good life. And that's what we see happening in Israel here, too. This is the charge against them. They turned their backs to me and not their faces. Though I taught them again and again, they would not listen or respond to discipline. They set up vile images in the house that bears my name and they defiled it. They built high places for Baal in the valley of Ben-Hinnom, 
to sacrifice their sons and daughters to Moloch. This is already a hell on earth. Israel is sacrificing their children to false gods. They've completely given themselves to the worship of these demonic forces of foreign nations. There's many other charges brought against them too. Child sacrifice is the leading cause, but they're accused of spilling innocent blood. They're accused of dishonesty in the marketplace, of plotting against their neighbor, of lusting after their neighbor's wives, and on and on and on. The amount of sin and deceit and evil that's happening in this nation right now is the complete opposite of this ideal blessing that God wanted Israel to have and then to be to the world. They're in complete regression from where they should be. Rather than being a blessing to a world, they're a curse to themselves. And so God's anger is at the destruction being caused to and by his people. Unlike Dawkins, I I see this differently. I think a God who was unmoved by child sacrifice, who said, well, you live your reality, you live your truth in our current language. You know, I'm not jealous, I'm not concerned, you know, you guys are going to have to figure it out, you're doing the best you can. That would be a scary God. A God who is not deeply moved by this kind of sin and this kind of evil and this kind of suffering. So again, a God who's angry, I think that just states he sees the sin and evil and he had good and beautiful plans for his people, good and beautiful plans for us, and we're not getting on that page and instead we're causing destruction to ourselves and destructions to others and that grieves him and it makes him angry. I think that's a good thing. But then why the exile? What's the purpose of the exile? Is this an intervention Or again, is this God saying, I can't work with you anymore? Work with you and me, work with Israel. And God has tried to have many interventions with Israel. Uh, Since the time he brought him up out of Egypt, he's been having interventions. He's trying to form them. He's trying to correct them. He's provided the law. He's provided miracles. He's gone with them. His very own presence has met with them at Mount Sinai and gone with them in the desert. He sent prophets. Those prophets were then disregarded and then they were killed. And his patience has gone on for generations and king after king after king after king and still things are not improving. They're getting worse and worse and worse. And so if we go back to God as a facilitator, he has an action he needs to take. He can either continue in this pattern that Israel is not responding to or he needs to go to a different intervention in the life of Israel as a nation. And so in his anger, yeah, but in his wisdom and love, he sends them into exile. And the exile, I think, is best understood as God completely handing Israel over to their choices. God says, if you want to worship and serve foreign gods, then go and worship and serve foreign gods fully. Not just in pretend here in Israel. No, go live under their power and their power structures. Go live under the Babylonian nation. See if they have blessing and abundance planned for you. See if they want what is good for you. See it fully. Let's pull back the veil and see what these false and foreign gods have in store for Israel. Because I think that might help clarify the choice here. This isn't vindictive. This isn't, this isn't meant as even, uh, perhaps it's meant as punishment, but it's meant as punishment to restore. 
God is pulling back the veil and letting us see the full weight of the choices that we're making. If we want to persist in this sin or serve this God, then do it fully and see what that has in store for you. And when God allows this to happen, when we get to this point in our walk and God says, okay, here, experience what it's like to be fully under that choice, uh, it's absolutely devastating. It was absolutely devastating for Israel. They lost everything. Everything that gave them a sense of cohesiveness, identity, security, it was all gone. And this is true for us as well, if we ever reach this point in life. But this devastation was not for their destruction, not for Israel's destruction, not for our destruction, but it was for their restoration. We get to the middle of the book of Lamentations, and I'd like everyone to read this with me together. Oh, okay. If you'd all read with me together from the middle of Lamentations, chapter 3, 31 through 33. For no one is cast off by the Lord forever. Though he brings grief, he will show compassion. So great is his unfailing love. For he does not willingly bring affliction or grief to anyone. No one is cast off by the Lord forever. And he does not willingly bring grief or affliction to anyone. God's anger and the exile isn't a rejection of his people. He's not done with them. In the book of Hebrews, it tells us God disciplines those whom he loves. Now, the exile sure would feel like a harsh level of discipline. And it was. But nothing else was working. You can be sure if there was a softer and gentler way for God to deal with Israel, he would have done it. In fact, he'd been trying for generations. And if there's a softer way to deal with us, he'll do it, if we'll respond to it. It's the hardness of our own heart that leads to these more severe consequences. God is trying to work with us in the most gentle way possible. But if we refuse and we harden our heart and we turn from God and we continue to not listen, out of his love, he will allow us to experience harsher consequences in that we might be restored. So how do we, in our lives, avoid getting to this place of exile? I think the obvious answer is to have soft and repentant hearts. To respond quickly to the word of God, the teaching of the church, the prompting of his spirit. Uh, to, as soon as sin is identified or false worship is known, to turn from it and be restored to God fully. <clears throat> and God provides his word. He provides his teachers. He provides prophets in our lives today. And so if we listen and we respond and we return we never need to enter a situation like this of the devastation that Israel experienced. But if you're sitting here this morning and you feel like you are in exile, like you are losing everything, family, reputation, career, finances, whatever, whatever, if all these things are falling away, or if one day you find yourself there, you can be sure this is not because God is done with you, because God is being vengeful or spiteful. For no one is cast off by the Lord forever. And he does not willingly bring grief or affliction to you. If you find yourself in this place, he's doing it for your restoration. He's doing this as a last resort to expose the emptiness of our idols and to clarify our choice between what the idols promise and what they can deliver and what they want for us and what God promises and can deliver and wants for us. Who do we want to serve? In the book of Deuteronomy, Moses, as he was 
preparing the Israelites, he recognized that they were going to fail in the future. He knew they were going to turn away from God and they were going to fall. And he tells them in this book, he says, but if from there, and from there is this place of exile, this place of loss and devastation, this, lost, uh, this place of being lost to God. He says, if from there you seek the Lord your God, you will find him. If you seek him with all your heart and with all your soul. I'd like to finish with a, a quote from uh, a friend of ours, and he's a First Nations pastor in Saskatchewan, and he comes out to Frontier Lodge once in a while. And he has this great quote he says at the campfire one, um, sometimes. He says, you can take a thousand steps away from God, but it only takes one step to return. God is faithful to his promises. He is consistent in his character. He will see his attention, intentions accomplished. And he deeply desires us to have, feel the blessing and the experience of that, of walking alongside him and being with him and serving him, because in him life is found. In these idols, only death is found. Would you all pray with me? Lord, we thank you that you are our teacher, our guide, our facilitator, that you are working to bring your purposes about in our life, and that you act with us in the gentlest way possible. Lord, would you give us soft hearts to respond? Would you help us be quick to return to you? Would you help us identify sin, false worship, and sacrifice? And Lord, would you remind us of your great love and your kindness? And even in the harshest moments where we feel like everything's ending, would you help us see that this is still your love being played out for us and your redemption and reconciliation being done in our life? May you bless the rest of our day. May your word take hold in our hearts and produce great fruit. We pray these things in your name. Amen. Okay. Have a good day.